Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University. Today we are talking about the Indonesian economy, especially trends in employment and manufacturing. My guest in this episode is Dr. Mohamed Zulfan Tajudin, a senior lecturer in development studies at the University of Western Sydney and the co-author of the book Employment and Reindustrialization in Post-Suharto Indonesia. In this book, Zulfan and his co-author, Anis Chaudhuri, provide a comprehensive overview of the trajectory of the Indonesian economy since 1998, with a particular focus on employment and unemployment, wages, productivity and inequality. In today's podcast, we will discuss some of these issues, but we'll pay special attention to the manufacturing sector and the question whether Indonesia is in the process of premature deindustrialization. Moreover, we will also talk about strategies to strengthen the manufacturing sector in the future and transform Indonesia into an industrialized economy. Zulfan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me in the program. Uh, it's my pleasure. Let's just start with a sort of brief basic overview because um, it's been quite a while since we've had an economy topic on the podcast. Can you just briefly tell us how is the Indonesian economy doing? The economy has been reasonably well. We need to look at the uh, Indonesian economy in the comparative perspective in the region, say comparing with Malaysia, Thailand and the Philippines. And that's one way to say that one. And then also you need to understand that the uh, assessment is based on the overall circumstances of the global economy that uh, Indonesia is facing now. Since the Asian financial crisis of late 90s, uh, the growth has been stabilized at five to six percent. Okay, yeah, that sounds like reasonably healthy growth figures. How did Indonesia get through the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009? The Indonesian economy survived during the GFC of 2009. So if you compare, I have the data showing the growth figures of the big four in ASEAN countries plus Vietnam, you will see here only Indonesia and Vietnam in Southeast Asia survived the GFC of 2009. If you look at Malaysia, Thailand, they experienced negative growth in 2009 and Philippines only grew at 1% in 2009. So from that perspective, Indonesia has been performed well during the global financial crisis. Mm. And what would you put that down to? How do you explain that Indonesia did so much better there than other countries in Southeast Asia? I think uh, two reasons have been widely mentioned. One is the more important role of domestic economy to the Indonesia. So that's why uh, Indonesia has been more resilient. And second one is the uh, strong link with China, who survived also the global financial crisis, and less link of the Indonesian economy with the two epicentrum of the GFC, which is North America and Western Europe. I think those two explanations uh, can explain the uh, resilience of the Indonesian economy. Mm, okay, thanks. And if we look at the individual sectors in the Indonesian economy, how much does manufacturing contribute to employment in Indonesia? If you look at by sector, we can see that uh, manufacturing has been the most dominant sector in the economy. But the problem is the sector has been declining from 28% in the early 2000 to 
around uh, 25% later on. So that's what we call the concern on the declining trend of the share of industrial sector or manufacturing sector in the economy that we call the industrializations. So 28% is that of the overall employment rate? That's the problem in Indonesia. The manufacturing employment contributions to the economy is only half of the manufacturing contributions in terms of GDP. So in mature uh, economy, you will find situations where the manufacturing contributions to GDP will be more or less similar with the manufacturing contributions to the employment. So this is this is why Indonesia is different. Indonesia is you have the bigger size of manufacturing contribution to GDP compared to the manufacturing contributions to the employment. So meaning that manufacturing has not been able to really absorb the labor transitions from the traditional agricultural sector. So this is probably also the next problem with the Indonesian manufacturing. So the contribution of manufacturing to employment is only about half of what manufacturing contributes to GDP. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Uh, Roughly you... speaking about when we look at the numbers. Yeah. How do you explain that, especially if you say that in more established economies, that's more or less the same? For the past 15 years or so, since the Asian crisis, the manufacturing growth has been labeled as the growth that really doesn't create employment, the so-called jobless growth. Mm -hmm. So the jobless growth has been labeled to the nature of the manufacturing sector in Indonesia since the Asian financial crisis. So that's one reason. Uh, main reason, in fact, why the share of employment does not increase parallel to the size of manufacturing contributions to GDP. Yeah, manufacturing was, if I remember correctly, was hit particularly hard by the Asian financial crisis in the late 1990s, right? And so you're saying that it didn't really recover well from that and the growth of its contribution to GDP was not matched by growth to employment. So you, you said it's down to the nature of the manufacturing sector. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Why has this sector grown in terms of GDP uh, contribution, but has not produced jobs and employment? There are different ways of looking at this one. The first one is if the share increase in terms of the share to GDP, but the share of employment doesn't increase, you can see this one from desirable and undesirable perspective. From the desirable perspective, meaning that the same proportions of employment produce higher level of GDP, meaning that you will see that increased productivity in the sector. Mm. That's a good thing. The second thing is, if you want to see that one from the rather undesirable view, you will see that one, the dynamic, uh, high productivity manufacturing, uh, high innovations, are not creating a higher share of employment. So meaning that from when you look at from the overall economic perspective, this is uh, relatively undesirable. So so it really depends on how you look at the, the, the things. Which viewpoint do you prefer? <laughs> this is not about preference, uh, depending, on, depending on what is the objective. So in terms of the productivity increase, probably a lower share of employment share is good from the productivity perspective. But from the overall economic perspective, when you want to see higher contributions of uh, manufacturing employment for different reasons, so you want to see higher share of manufacturing employment as well. 
what does the Indonesian manufacturing sector actually look like? What kind of products does Indonesia produce these days? And is it mostly for domestic consumption or for export? Compared with the past, uh, we can say that the role of domestic economy has becoming more important rather than the foreign market. So Indonesia cannot undermine the role of the domestic economy. So, But in terms of the structure of the manufacturing sector, what we can see uh, the change from the early 2000 to the recent years. So we can see that while the share has been declining, the shift has been from the uh, resource-based uh, labor-intensive manufacturing product toward the more capital-intensive higher technology product. So there has been a shift toward that directions. In your book, you speak at length about the manufacturing sector. It forms a pretty substantial part of the book. And you're describing fears about so-called premature deindustrialization in Indonesia. Can you explain a little bit what that means, why deindustrialization and why it is premature? Yes, what we mean by deindustrialization is the declining share of the manufacturing sector in the economy, declining in terms of the share in GDP and declining in terms of the employment share. So the problem with Indonesia is Declining share can be just a normal step of economic development. But the problem is when you have a declining share of the manufacturing sector before a country reaches the full potential of the manufacturing sector. So that's the so-called premature deindustrialization. The second one is the deindustrialization should be fine if the economy is transforming from the maturity of the manufacturing sector and then you develop on top of that a very productive high productivity surface sector Mm. and unfortunately this is not the case in indonesia the decline in the role of manufacturing sector is complemented with the increased share of the surface sector but the nature of the surface sector that compensate the decline in the manufacturing sector has been the low productivity surface sector. So that's differentiate between the so-called positive day industrializations and negative day industrializations. Mm. Yeah, okay, it, it comes to early partly because the service sector is has not moved into a stage yet where it can properly sort of replace the industry sector. Exactly. Hmm. Okay. I wonder if we could establish a link between these issues, the deindustrialization, and another economic issue that we have actually talked about on the podcast here a while ago, which um, has been widely debated in Indonesia, which is growing inequality. I don't think the direct link can be established here, simply because of the different nature of inequality. The rise in inequality cannot be blamed on a single factor. But we did a kind of exercise in in the book. Uh, We tried to link between the productivity growth, the movement of productivity, and the movement of wage, real wage. And then what we see for the past 15 uh, years or so, there has been the diverging trend between productivity and wage. On one hand, we see the continuous increase in the uh, productivity per worker. But at the same time, we see relatively stagnant of the real wage. So the outcome of this one is a kind of de-alignment between productivity and wage. So this has been 
positively correlated with the increase in inequality. So probably if you want to find out one contributing factor towards the increase in inequality in Indonesia for the past 15 years, probably one reason was because of the, the alignment between productivity and wage. Yeah, wages have, of course, been a matter of public debate in Indonesia in recent years, very often. And minimum wage rises have been achieved uh, through protests and through lobbying by um, unions. And are the conditions of Indonesian workers generally improving? So this is two different things that we can clearly see from the book. If you want to compare pre and post Asian crisis, during the new order, you will see that productivity growth was more or less in line with wage growth. Okay, they are keeping pace. But what happened after 2000, you will see the divergence, the dealignment between productivity and real wage. So meaning that you have the so-called declining wage productivity ratio. So this has been the different trend before and after the Asian crisis. So the stagnant real wage has been the dominant trend since uh, early 2000, despite the increased activism on the labor side. So this is uh, something inconsistent. On the one hand, you have, you can see that labor activism uh, provided by the democratic reforms, but uh, the effect of the labor activism on the real progress on the real wage, the, generally speaking, has not been significant. And then you'll see the trend of the alignment between uh, productivity and wage, something that needs to be acknowledged very clearly to read the trend in the past 15 years or so. Mm, and that provides a good basis for trying to address these issues, I suppose. So maybe in our conversation now we can move on to some potential solutions or policy suggestions of how to deal with the process of deindustrialization, premature deindustrialization. You dedicate a fair bit of time and space in the book to problems with solutions due to the change setting of the political setting in Indonesia after 1998. In particular, that now that we have a decentralized state, there are a lot more different players at the table who have a stake in formulating economic policy, industrial policy, labor policy, etc. So to what extent does decentralization and the stake that local governments have in the economy constrain the central government from addressing some of the issues that you've mentioned? The decentralizations or the opening space of democracy and the regional how can you call it, uh, exercise to express their interests. So the undesirable is, is that if you have a kind of competitions between regions and you have the, situation, the so-called rest to the bottom, the nature is not healthy from the economic progress. So instead of uh, having competitions, the things has to look at from the so-called the inter-regional linkage or regional complementarity of different regions in Indonesia. So this is the challenge. Instead of looking at Indonesia as a segmented different markets, we need to look at, or the policymakers needs to look at, the diverse economy as a one economy, one market, where different regions can complement each other. And creating the so-called regional integrations forward and backward linkers among regions. So if one region moves forward, that will be the pull factor that drives also the move forward uh, uh, movement for other regions. Rather than 
to compete each other and to engage in the so-called race to the bottom. So that's my view on this. Yeah. Can you just briefly say the race to the bottom that refers to what kind of process? If, for example, you want to compete in a level of wage to attract investment or to attract relocations of the industry, you shouldn't lower your wage simply because of you want to beat the other regions. But in fact, on these things, you know, the different power of the bargaining between uh, the employer and the uh, workers has created the regional diversity in terms of wage. So meaning that rather than engaging in the wage war, just let the regional diversity play a role in the natural reallocations of the industry. So this is what I mean, race to the bottom. Rather than lowering the standard, let's take the natural difference across regions as the factors that naturally direct the relocations of industry. Okay, so race to the bottom refers primarily to wages, right? Local governments may think that by lowering the wages, they attract more investment or... Is that what you mean by race to the bottom? That's one possible interpretation of race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. The other interpretation is probably lowering the environmental standard or being reckless about regulations or things like that. But wage can be one way we can see the race to the bottom. Mm, okay. So that indicates that local governments do have a, a massive stake in this and have significant discretion at formulating economic policy, right? So can you talk a little bit about the interaction between the central government and local governments in addressing these issues? How can that race to the bottom be prevented? If you look at the nature of decentralization in, in Indonesia, Probably the weakening of the central government is parallel with the empowerment of the local governments. But this has been reversed, I suppose. The country needs uh, empowered, creative, powerful uh, local governments, while at the same time, uh, the, the healthy decentralizations will need also a stronger and more coordinated act from the side of the central government. Initially, Yes, we see that the weakening of the central government and then the increased uh, role of, of powerfulness of the local government. So things has changed, I suppose. Yeah, I think uh, re-centralization is occurring in a number of sectors um, where the central government is trying to regain some of the powers that it ceded earlier to local governments. Um, if we look back at the economic development over the last 15 years during which decentralization was implemented, which regions, which provinces or districts within provinces have implemented the most promising policies in regards to industrialization? Do we see clear, I suppose we probably see clear differences between Western and Eastern Indonesia, but apart from that, are there certain centers where industrial policy has been particularly progressive and effective and others that are lagging behind? Actually, not much has changed because overall, we can see that the role of the manufacturing sector has been declining. That's for sure. And then if you look at the regional distributions of the manufacturing sector, actually, the uh, manufacturing GDP is dominated only by few provinces, the so-called the most industrialized provinces in Indonesia. And those provinces have not changed for mm. the past 15 years. So you look at uh, 
West Java, Banten, East Java, Kapulang Riau, and uh, East Kalimantan for the sake of oil gas industry. So that's all. I mean, uh, the manufacturing value-added GDP are concentrated in few provinces and nothing has changed for the past 15, 20 years. How does President Jokowi's infrastructure program play into this? He obviously has the ambition of linking the eastern parts of the country better to the dominant economic drivers. Do we already see any impact of these policies? Are there already any tangible results or is it too early to tell? I think uh, too early to say, but we can see the directions. So from this perspective, the stress on the infrastructure development and the spread of the infrastructure development uh, toward the lagging behind regions, this can facilitate the spread of the industry beyond the few provinces. So this is steps in the right directions. But if you want to see the relocations of the industry in the short term, I doubt tangible result will will be detectable. But what has been done by the current administrations is very much steps in the right directions in my view. Mm. And do these steps differ significantly from what Djokovic's predecessor has tried to achieve? I mean, he didn't put so much emphasis on infrastructure. And you said that the, the profile has basically not changed over the last 15 years. So do we see a shift in policies between the Djokovic and the Yudhiyona administrations in regards to industrial policy? Actually, if you look at the policy documents, every five years, at the beginning of the term of each administration, they will have the so-called medium-term development plan with the five years durations. Actually, if you look at the written document, not much has changed. But the difference probably now is more actions toward uh, the spread of infrastructure development with more streamlined bureaucracy in terms of delivering that uh, program and more control of corruption. So from that perspective, you will see more effectiveness rather than big shift in terms of policy. So it sounds more as if the enabling environment is being changed rather than the actual policy directly related to employment. Is that right? I think so. I think so. Hmm. Okay. So in view of all that, can I get you to give us a, an assessment of how you rate Indonesia's chances to actually improve the performance of the manufacturing sector and improve employment rates or the contribution that manufacturing makes to both growth and employment? If you go back to the latest medium-term planning document, which is the RPGM, the Rencana Pembangunan Jangka Menengah Indonesia, published in 2014 at the beginning of Jokowi's administrations, you will see a very strong emphasis toward revitalizing the industrial sector. And this has been commendable. And from that perspective, you see also the next move in 2015 toward the so-called master plan of the industrial development. So the idea of revitalizing the manufacturing sector or the industrial sector has been there in the planning document. So from that perspective, you can see two things that will serve as steps in, direct, in the right directions. One is the revitalization of the infrastructure. And the second one is the concern toward improving the quality of manpower in terms of education spending and health spending. So from that perspective, things are in step in, in right directions. But 
to see the relocations, to see the tangible outcome in terms of reversing the share of manufacturing, it takes time to see the effect. The time frame that we've been looking at in your or that you've been looking at in your book is since the Asia financial crisis, right? Since the beginning of democratization. So that's about 20 years now in which manufacturing has declined. Now under Jacobi, you're saying that there are some steps taken in the right direction. So would we have to wait another 20 years or so before we can see a reversal in those trends? The reversal will not be detectable in the short term. But what we can identify now is, is Indonesia moving in the right directions or not? So that's what we can identify so far. So in the medium term, medium term means around five to 10 years. So that, I think, the right time frame to see the impact. Hmm. Well, President Jokowi in particular will probably not want to wait that long to see some results because he is facing an election next year. And while it's probably unrealistic to expect some elaborate policy proposals for industrial output or for the manufacturing sector, I think one economic issue that may feature in the campaign, because it lends itself quite easily to exploitation for campaign purposes, is inequality, what we just touched upon very briefly earlier on. So with a view to next year's presidential and parliamentary elections, what is your view on that? Do you think that whoever will challenge Jokowi ultimately will try to seize on the fact that inequality is still high? Yes, inequality is the entry point into politics. And I agree with you that uh, higher inequality will be feeding the kerosene to the fire of populism or populist politics. So that's true. That has been the case even in the US or in, in the UK, for example, or in the different parts of the world. But the problem now is we need to be fair about to see inequality in Indonesia. You have to differentiate between perceptions and fact. So if you look at the broad trend of the inequality represented by the Gini coefficients, the most widely used measures of inequality, basically you will see the sharp rise in inequality between mid-2000 till 2012-2013. Mm-hmm. And since then, since 2013-14 up until now, there has been a decline in inequality, although the decline has not been as much as expected. Because Jokowi has put the target of achieving a Gini coefficient of uh, 0.36 by the end of his term in 2019, which is probably unlikely to be achieved. But since 2013-2014, the rise in inequality has been has been stopped in mm. terms of uh, Gini coefficients. The level of Gini coefficients has uh, stable and uh, slowly declined from the 0.41. So from that perspective, this is an achievement. Mm. But how to make it more remarkable in terms of reducing the level of inequality, that's another story. From the economic side, you will see that the social assistance has been intensified, the targeting has been improved. And from non-economic side, things has been suggested also as a different ways of tackling inequality. Two things has been mentioned. One is to handle more corruptions. That would be inequality reducing. The second one is to make the public service more efficient. But things has not been maximal, especially when we touch the core argument of the book about the de-alignment between labor productivity and wage. So this needs more structural approach, something that has not been well acknowledged in the current policy making. 
Yeah, and how well the government will do on that front is probably likely to influence the outcome of that election. Yeah. Thank you very much for these insights, Zulfan. Thank you. That was Dr. Zulfan Tajudin from the University of Western Sydney speaking with Dirk Tomsa on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Please join us again on the 5th of July for the next episode of this podcast. You can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening, and until next time.